Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Talking Out Loud podcast with Bobby and Raymond. My name is Raymond, the reason you're here, and with me is my best good friend and mental training coach, Bobby Doogie. Hello, Bobby. Hey, buddy. How it's are we doing today? A pretty, I'm doing okay. We've got a lot of uh, sports going on right now. This is kind of in the summer swing, so to speak, so I'm enjoying catching up on that stuff. Plus, the Bruins are in the Stanley Cup Finals. Boston sports are killing it in the last calendar year and uh and just happy to be here with you you know like you just you're just a ray of sunshine in my otherwise cloudy life you know i am correct yeah uh, i like your perspective so sure. it's funny you go boston sports i, I just give your wife that. a shout out here like um, yeah. i mean boston sports okay but like i woke up one day and allison's milwaukee wisconsin sport nation it's it's just like killing it all over the place Right, they they are. Like, they're, like the box, well, they're, they're killing the Brewers it. were in it. Right, the Brewers are really yeah. good last year and looking like they're going to be good again. And yeah, it was it was a rough night in our house last night. The Bucks lost Game Five at home to the Raptors. So, but like they're in it. Uh, I mean, what, they're like, in what, it. What are, what are Milwaukee sports doing? I mean, this power. I mean, the voice of the Packers. But like, yeah, did you expect them to be a year-round sports destination? Plus, like, you kind of claim. This, what, what would Milwaukee area, Wisconsin area's hockey team be like? I guess they claim the Chicago. Blackhawks, who nah, I don't, were recently very dominant. They definitely they don't. don't claim. Yeah, nobody in Wisconsin's claiming Chicago. That's not sports. how that works. Yeah, yeah I you understand how that, that works. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I don't know that they claim a team. They do have like a minor league team in Milwaukee. I think the Admirals are their name. But yeah, they're. It's interesting that Sans hockey, but I would say the biggest hockey teams in uh, Wisconsin are the University of Madison, Wisconsin Badgers. For sure. Their women's team, I think, just won a national championship. Let me. Let me verify that. Yeah, check that. Don't don't be putting fake news out. Yeah, do um, you, you fact check? Um, well, anyway, I'm I'm proud of Allison and all she's enjoying in in the sporting world. And as a diehard New York fan, it gives me great joy to see her happy. And I'm rooting against you constantly. Uh, how did you fan. feel about the Knicks? Would they get pick number three? Pick number three. I mean, listen, this actually segues into a couple of questions that I have for you that I'd like to kind of mm-hmm. rapid fire on. Okay. So here's the deal. Like Before Knicks we go fans, there, I can confirm that the Badgers women. Lady Badgers. I love it. Lady Badgers. Pardon me. Uh, tournament champions in nineteen nine in 2019. So congratulations okay. to Badgers. Don't, don't be bringing the 1990s into this. Let's make sure we get the facts right. Yeah. yeah. 19 something something. Right. Um, Played on Old Forest Lake. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So your Knicks fans question. Here, here's my thing. I want to talk about some big New York long-suffering Knicks fan. Um, Knicks fans are programmed at this point to be like, oh, we should have got the first pick, even though there was no mathematical odds that suggested we should have. In fact, we had a 14% chance. So, yeah. Um, you know, you should have expected that that wasn't going to work out if you're a Knicks fan at this point. But like, we got the third pick. This is great news. Everybody's saying this is a three-player draft. And you, Raymond, are long on record on this podcast and years and years before podcasts. Like, we can't really predict performance. So top three pick when they say, hey, this is a three-player draft talent-wise, whether it's you know Zion, who of course everybody you know, thinks is this generational talent, he probably is, or Job Morant, who looks otherworldly to me, um, yeah. or it's R.J. Barrett, who a year ago everyone was like, hey, that's the most skilled player and still might argue he's still a skilled player. Like If you're getting any one of those guys, it's great news. Um, so – 
I'm not so I'm not so down on it. I'm actually pretty positive on it. I think it's a good situation for the Knicks, mostly because of the cap space they have where they can sign known entities, which gets to a couple questions I have for you. I want mm-hmm. you to value just just quick curiosity. Um, current players versus some different situations of projected talent. It's your team. You have the choice. I got three questions for you. You could have Tom Brady on your football team. You're starting of, you know, age matters. Salary does not. So don't don't factor in any of that part of building okay. a team. But age is relevant. Would you rather have Tom Brady starting a football team or any of the quarterbacks drafted in the, this year's draft? You could pick whichever one you want. Um, that one's easy. I would take Tom Brady and it's not because I'm like a blindly loyal fan. Sure. It's just that Tom, Tom is still playing at an elite level quarterback and you never know what you're going to get with a rookie quarterback. And most of the time <clears throat> it takes several years to figure out, uh, what kind of quarterback you have, like the Andrew Lux of the world and the, the, you know, there's been a couple of quarterbacks, the Russell Wilson's who just come in in their rookie year and are really good are so few and far between, uh, I would take Brady for another two years playing at what level he is before taking a rookie quarterback without really knowing what uh, he's capable of. Yeah, so, so you're basically saying I'll easy. take one of the best quarterbacks in the league for a couple of more years that he'll be that as opposed to yes. taking a shot at a future yeah. franchise. And you got to remember like the vast majority of quarterbacks drafted don't yeah. play. Agreed. <laughs> so yeah, I'll take somebody I, I know what I'm getting on that in that position okay. uh, despite the age okay. for sure. This gets to the question you asked me would you rather have zion this projected generational talent who has never bounced a ball as an nba player or would you rather sign kevin durant salaries irrelevant yeah um i would actually take zion in this situation and it has nothing to do with ability and everything to do with um personality and um and by personality i mean what we've seen so far of his, of Zion's ability to interact and play with other people and what we've seen so far of Kevin Durant's uh, difficulty doing those two things. And by Kevin Durant's difficulty, you mean ingratiating him into a ready-made championship team that he became the best player on seamlessly. <laughs> that one. Okay, we disagree. Um, that one. But now I have some Knicks bias in there because I'm hoping he becomes a Knicks player. Mm-hmm. All right, last one for you, just curiosity. You could have Mike Trout or three mm. years in a row of the number one pick in the in the baseball draft. Mike Trout. He's young and he's the best player in baseball and he's been the best player in baseball for almost a decade. He's probably got another six or seven really good years. Baseball's first round draft picks are a little bit more predictive than uh, basketball. Not just first round there, Raymond, or, though. Number one first yeah, round. The yeah, first, first yeah the number one. But even the number, even number one picks, you still don't know where they're going to land. Typically, they make it to the major leagues. But if you're telling me, I mean, Mike Trout is a generational player. If they could get him off the Angels and onto another team, I mean, the fact that that guy hasn't played or been in like a real playoff or won a playoff game or playoff series is crime. Just tragic. Yeah. It's tragic. Yeah. Uh, he he. I know he's getting paid. I mean, they he is a not just a legend on the field anymore. He is now a legend at the bank with the contract that he got. Uh, but I think the longer he stays in Anaheim, the less likely he is to win a World Series, which is a shame. But, um, I mean, he, just all of the way he plays and, and all of his stats, like it, it would be hard to argue if you offered me five years of the number one overall pick. I mean, 
there are organizations in the major leagues who have had the first overall pick 10 times in the last 100 years and have never found a player like Mike Trout. So I will take Mike Trout. Is it fair to say, Raymond, that, you know, as we've talked about predictions and things that you're fundamentally opposed to, that you're just, you generally value what you know versus what you're guessing? Is that what we just learned as a. Um, No, I just, well, I would value, again, I'm interested in what predicts success and if you have someone who is successful that's more predictive than someone you don't and there are just a lot of question marks when it comes to the draft and there are some variables like where you get drafted that are important but it's a combination of a lot of things that we don't we don't really have the insights into really be able to measure and then it also matters where you get drafted i mean the bottom line is if you took anybody's career there are very few players where you say wow i think they would be successful anywhere and uh, that's just a really big unknown. So when it comes to the draft, uh, I'm a little bit more. I mean, and plus you're also offering me things that are really those ones were easy to me because they seemed there's a lot of information on those. And uh, but if you were taking, hey, would you this player for, for a third round pick or this or whatever, then it gets a little bit more. Well, I'll, I'll gamble a little bit and see what I can find. But like when you're I mean, you're Mike Trout and Tom Brady, like you're talking two of the best players of all time. Like that's hard to stack however many draft picks. Yeah. Just for what it's worth. I agree with you on Brady because I think quarterback is such a roulette um, projection. I don't Mm -hmm. agree with you on Zion versus KD just because you know, you're getting the best player in the world for the next five years on KD. And I don't agree with you on Mike Trout just because to the explanation you gave, Mike Trout is proof that you can have the best player in the league for years and not win a playoff game. I think you, you know, baseball, number one draft picks, they, as you said, they generally get to the league. So you're getting three, probably starting caliber players. Um, but anyway, yeah. uh, just curious. Uh, so interesting conversation. You have some interesting conversation for us for the rest of this podcast, don't you? Yeah, we've got to finish up a couple of questions that we didn't get to on our last podcast, probably because you were talking too much. Likely. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll try to keep it succinct this time but we've got a question this is from jeff and again i know jeff is a graduate student because he said so in his email and also because his question was several 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 sentences long so we've just to recap uh, that mr concise your detective work on knowing that jeff is a graduate student is because he said he's a graduate student Mm -hmm. that's right he's also got a dot edu email address so keep going the proof's in the pudding so this so to say when has proof ever been in pudding i don't know okay so uh his question is along the lines of can you talk about any sports psychology quote-unquote phrases that are common but also incorrect so what i think he's asking are you know are there things that we would typically hear maybe on tv or even from sports psych professionals or from coaches or whoever where it's related to sports psychology, but it's technically not true. Uh, and you and I can think of a couple. Yeah, why don't, we, why don't we each – let's toss them back. There. Let's go tennis style, Raymond, on this question. Let's just – Okay. Rest of the Serving podcast, volume. let's sure. just keep – I know we'll come up with enough. So let's just keep throwing them back and forth and see how it goes. Um, okay. You probably – my first one might be the same as yours. But uh, it's um, – <clears throat> okay, so good question, Jeff, by the way, because there are a lot of kind of – concepts and, and ideas that are thrown out there as if they're founded in sports psychology Many. and 
and coaches use mm-hmm. them a lot and analysts and, and they're not um, often helpful or accurate. So first one for me is Raymond. It's the it factor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that guy or girl has elusive it, it factor. and what is it? And people who describe mental toughness as it, can you give me it? I want it because I've mm-hmm. seen someone else have it or I've even had it at one time, but I lost it. How many times did I just say it? It seems like many. Yeah. Uh, can you, Bobby, can you riff on a little bit where you think, and of course this is a little bit speculation, but we can make some educated guesses, where you feel that phrase, how it started and how it kept going and how it's become something that we yeah, might hear pretty frequently? Yeah, it's, it's good. Let, let's, talk, let's toss this back and forth because I'm, I'm going to tail into a story that, that you've told I'll steal from you. Um, but Truthfully, I th- I think the it factor came from something that is hard to define and someone got a little lazy at one mm. point and it sort of stuck, you know, yeah. what is mental toughness? Yeah, it's a complex question. What is your peak performance? Where does it come from? It's a really complex question and sometimes it's easier to oversimplify, but I think that gets into dangerous territories because where we've landed on is there's a lot of people out there in the world of performance that think you're born with it or you got bit by a bug and you have it. Right. And, and someone else doesn't. And, you know, my, my personal philosophy is I think, you know, Raymond is that everybody's born with everything they need to find their peak performance. I mean, if you're a mindset trainer, a mental toughness coach, performance consultant of any kind, and you don't think anyone can find their best performance, I don't really know why you're in this job. So I don't think that it is something we as trainers, you know, give to someone that they didn't already have. I think mental toughness, as we've talked on previous podcasts, is a result of an organized set of mental training, mindset training skills or tools that someone personalizes, customizes to, to their own needs, and then utilizes in the right place at the right time to find their peak performance and maintain it for as long as they're able. Um so it, where did it come from? As I said, I, I think probably someone had a hard time defining what mental toughness or peak performance is, and they landed on this, and it's kind of clever and it's stuck. But you know, Raymond, I'll throw this back to you on a story that you've told recently. This is like a first day of grad school. I talked to, talking to Jeff, who sent this question. Awesome question, by the way, Jeff. Um, mm-hmm. This is like a first day of grad school thing, right? I'm in sports psych 101, whatever the equivalent is of that class, and that this this idea comes up probably in that class in a lot of different schools all the time. Let's talk about it. Mental toughness is it, right? And as you've said, you know, we were sitting there on day one with the with the great Greg Shelley, and we're like, we are going to find out what it is, and that is going to blow our minds. We found out it is an entire industry of sports psychology that we had to learn about. Um, so I don't know. It, it's it's complicated because I think the value in the it factor is it's easy to understand. And for whatever reason, people understand that phrase from a performance standpoint, it's dangerous to me because I don't think, I I think it gives the idea that you either have it or you don't, which is fundamentally incorrect. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Bobby. I would summarize it by saying it's really, it makes us feel better as human beings when somebody else is doing remarkable things relative to us to just point a finger and say, oh, they have it. They have some innate something that I don't, that I wasn't born with. They're the lottery winner and I'm not. Rather than going, really examining 
that person's progression up the learning curve and realizing that they were just willing to or able to do things that I wasn't willing to do. So I think the it factor, it kind of lets us off the hook for not uh, pursuing our own limits of our own potential and putting in the work to do that. So it makes it sound like, well, they got the easy road, so they got it. Is so that's a little bit dangerous. That's like fixed mindset to the T. And then the second part of it, I think you're absolutely right when you say that it summarizes what seems really complicated. Mm-hmm. And it can be complicated at times. Like it is not really a singular it, it's a plural it. And it includes some things that are innate, like your genetic code, but it also includes a ton of things that are controllable, some things that we learn, some things that we can relearn and reestablish. And um, it's a little bit more complicated than do I have something or do I not? And it's really easy to explain when we don't understand something to kind of put the simplest uh, label on it, even if that's wrong. Uh, and so, yeah, I think the the it factor is something that's still pretty promoted. Like oh, if you watch SportsCenter, you're going to hear people talk about they have it or they have the killer instinct or they have the the ice in their veins or whatever. Like those are um, those types of traits or behaviors that we would see are things that are learned and certainly having the right genetic code helps. But anybody can learn to be cool and calm under pressure or to be present when the pressure is on or to train themselves to see the world in the way that is most beneficial to them. So yeah, the, it is, uh, what I was a, a great place to start being incorrect because it's, uh, one of those things that many people buy into that is wrong and very limited. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it, to your point, it diminished when you label other people that are mentally tough, with it, you're diminishing their effort to a certain extent, right? Their effort their and sure. your own. And your own. Um, and the other, yeah. the other problem I have with it, Raymond, is just it. My personal philosophy on all this stuff is it, I, I'm all about empowerment, right? Empowering people. And the starting point with any of my workshops or clients, whatever, is empowering people to understand that they they have all the tools they need, and we can help give them some information to help them get there. But this idea that it is something someone else has that you don't is just I'm fundamentally opposed to it, to use one of your phrases as it relates to predictions um, uh, or, or the incorrect predictors more specifically to quote you accurately. Um, right. But uh, I'm just fundamentally opposed to any concept that implies someone doesn't have what they need to, to be their best self. So uh, anyway, that, that that's my first one. It factor. Let me serve and volley back to you, Raymond, your turn, Th- throw something out. Yeah. I'm- yeah, my next one, uh, the first one that came to my mind was practice makes perfect, which it most certainly does not. Also, then you hear some people say practice makes permanent. That is also not true. Um, what is really, really clear about uh, research and studying the way that p- experts practice is that you do not need to be an expert to practice. And just because you're doing something will not make it perfect. So if you have a faulty golf swing, but you practice it over and over and over and over for hours and hours and hours and months and months and years and years and years, it will not make it perfect, nor will its execution be perfect. Only deliberate purposeful practice, which is the fastest and most efficient, but also least enjoyable road to efficiency and expert level uh, execution leads to improvement uh at the fastest clip and so the bottom line is if you're not good at something or even if you are just practicing it for the sake of practicing it and throwing a thousand hours at it or ten thousand hours at it 
does not make you an expert. <laughs> and it doesn't make you better at it. So if you're doing something incorrectly and you practice it incorrectly, it does not make it perfect. But it also doesn't make it permanent because we can always relearn something. It just it's just a matter of how much time. Yeah, this is an interesting starting one for you uh, to throw out as your first one. So uh, a phrase that you use a lot, Raymond, that I, I have stolen from you and give you credit for as the person I'm talking to might have heard you say it. Otherwise, I steal it as my own. Pretty standard, right? Mm-hmm, um, of course. Is yeah. when you talk about the quality and quantity of a person's effort, and and I think that I know that's a very that's a big concept for you, um, and I think that that really speaks to the holes in practice makes perfect. I actually went to a tennis camp when I was a kid, and the guy that ran it uh, was an old he was a older gentleman at the time, and he and he was a college tennis coach, and I one of the things I remember is he would always say. Uh, this is when I was a kid. I knew nothing about performance or anything, but he would say, people say practice makes perfect. That's wrong. Perfect practice makes perfect. And he was close. I, I you know, I, I think he mm-hmm. was, he was, his premise yeah. was correct. And I think that what this, um, what this phrase practice makes perfect gets wrong is that it, it hits effort with a, like a blunt object, right? And it treats effort like a blunt object, like yeah. no efforts about repetition Well, repetition on its own is not necessarily valuable to you. And that's, that's where, you know, performance consulting mindset training can come in. Let's evaluate um, this impressive, this impressive effort that you might have going, not just on the quantity, which I think people too often stop at when evaluating effort or practice or repetition and not the quality. I know you're, you're all over that, right? For sure. I mean, really what you're talking about is, um, you know, what your tennis coach was hinting at is like the quality of your practice is going to determine how effective the quantity of your practice is. And you need both. And it's pretty clear uh, that if you want to really stretch the limits of your potential, that the quantity and the quality has to be in the right place. And we don't do that perfectly really ever, but just putting reps downrange or, or just putting in the effort physically over and over and over again doesn't do it, which by the way, even if you practice really, really efficiently, that's great. But if you're not doing it enough, then that's, uh, that's not going to lead to improvement either. So it's finding the balance between both. Okay. Back to you, Bobby. So you served, I volleyed, obviously won that point. So you can serve again. Still in play, bro. One point, but anyway, tomato, tomato. Um, Okay, I'm gonna what I say, effector. Um, th- this one's similar, Raymond, but but different. Similar but different. Um, similar but different is not the phrase I'm, uh, that I'm re- uh, referencing here. Uh, I'm gonna go with in the zone, which hands itself off mm. to flow state. And he- here's why I'll go there. You and I have had this conversation a lot, somewhat recently, offline as it relates to flow state. I have found that the state of flow or the word flow or flow state is like the go-to sports psych term that a coach or athlete kind of brings up first when they want to show some knowledge of sports psychology or performance psychology. Um, And a lot of my early conversations with clients that have done, you know, some, I would say high level or, or basic research on it, they often bring, hey, I'm, I, I want to get in that state of flow. I want to get in the zone. Um, 
And it's a really eye-opening moment and somewhat discouraging at first, I would say, moment, Raymond. I don't know if you've found this or if you have had some of the same experiences when you're like, well, that's not exactly what we want to do here. That's not exactly our purpose. Then we kind of reset. Yeah. And, and it's often a redefining moment early in a relationship for me. Um, but it's such a common phrase in the zone or flow, you know, flow state. Um, have you found that as well? Does that come up a lot? Yeah. Um, yes. And, and I think there's good reason for that, Bobby. I think, first of all, flow state is the optimal state of human functioning. And it is also one of the optimal states of human enjoyment. And so if someone says, I would really like to be in flow state, sure. that makes total sense. Yeah, throw me some flow. That is awesome. But as as we've discussed a little bit on this podcast before, flow state is really um, difficult in that it's not a very stable source of performance because it's a fragile state, which can be broken pretty quickly, particularly if you don't have the skills in place or the understanding of yourself and your environment to be able to adjust and modify. And the bottom line is if you're thinking about being in flow state, it means you're not in flow state anymore. And so we never know really when it's going to come. We never know how long it's going to stay. The only thing we can do is try to get as close as possible by um, building a psychological framework that is geared toward that and to build the type of skills to bring us as close to that moment. But there are a variety of external factors that do kind of need to fall into place to really kick us through the, you know, the analogy I use is you can get pretty close to the doorway and even open the door, but there's gotta be a little bit of help to kick you through when it comes to flow state. And with the exception of the extreme sports being kind of our X game ish type sports, uh, even the best performers in the world report being in flow state no more than 10% of the time. Which means if you're looking for that to be something that you want to be able to get into as frequently as possible, uh, you're basing trying to perform really well on something that happens very infrequently. Which because so when coaches say, "Hey, get in the zone," what would probably be more effective phrase is like, "Hey, let's bring our focus to right. this," or you know, ground yourself in the present moment with blank, rather than saying get in the zone, which is kind of this the state, state that we don't really right, yeah. know if we're in or not. Yeah, the kind of, well, it's not even a state in your vomit, it's just a state of total presence, right? And the idea that you're going to be um, in some of the biggest moments of your life, and by biggest, I mean, most important to you, or with the most distractions around you, and you're going to be in flow state is pretty unlikely. I've only had one athlete in the last 11 years of consulting tell me that on the day that he or she really wanted to be in flow state was when it was most important to them they were and there were a variety of external factors that made it really more much more likely for that to happen and kudos to her for having the skills and the framework to be to even be able to do that but when you're talking about being at the olympics and being in flow state that is yeah and my my message on this um is always listen that's not it's it, as you said, you, you've referenced 10% of, of the time being in it. It's not a realistic expectation. And I'm all about high expectations. We've talked about some previous podcasts. I think and in general, humans expect less of themselves than they should. Um, and, and a lot of times my message is about empowering people to, to expect more and to then do more, which is what it's all about. Um, but when you get to the point where what mm -hmm. you're expecting and what you're trying to work towards is unrealistic, you're setting yourself up for failure, um, which isn't, you know, isn't, isn't what optimal performance is all about. The other, the, and, and the place to go with that, Raymond, you and I say it very similarily, you know, I, I say, to people, let's worry about what we can control. 
and then um, put ourselves in mm-hmm. the best possible situation to allow flow state to happen, um, you know, when and if it's able. But I, I want you to be able to be your best self when you're not in flow state. Um, and, and that's really sure. you know, how I try to phrase, you know, transition that early conversation that happens a lot with athletes um, or coaches. Yeah. It also makes it sound like it's a really easy place to get to. Like it's a flip of a switch. And of course we know if you, if it was as easy as a flip of a switch, don't you right. think more people would do well, it? We would have often? sold that to you by now. <laughs> yeah, we would have sold that and packaged it and we'd be rich and this podcast would be syndicated, but it's just our moms yeah. and a bunch of grad students. So obviously, loyal grad students, man. I'm all about it. Grad student army. Let's, let's do this. Hashtag yeah. grad student army. Haven't hashtag in a while. Okay. Uh, back to you, Raymond. Let's, uh, we got a little more time here. Let's try to get uh, one or two more. All right. Back to me. I've got this one and we're going to kick this one back and forth. I know you and I have different thoughts on it. We'll see where you're going with it. Um, the mm-hmm. phrase fake it till you make it, which by the way, this phrase is very, very common in grad school for graduate students, applying it to themselves and other people. And quite frankly, the phrase could not be more damaging. Um, so let's just review real quickly. So fake it till you make it is this phrase that kind of is like, Hey, if you don't feel like you're capable of doing something or, you're not feeling super confident, like just fake like you are and that'll get you through it. So if we understand the mechanisms and the underlying elements of confidence, we'll understand why this doesn't work. So remember, confidence has two factors that are that's built upon are two different levels. The top level is self-esteem, which is feeling comfortable, how you feel, make yourself feel better type of confidence, feel good about yourself. And that is a good level of confidence, but it's really unstable because our feelings change a lot. And the bottom line is if you're doing something you've never done before at a level that you've never done before, you're probably not going to feel super comfortable about it or super quote unquote confident. The next level of confidence is self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is a big fancy psych term for power and it's power generated by effort. Now, self-efficacy isn't about trying to make ourselves feel good about doing something. It's just about doing the work or doing the thing and seeing what happens for the most part or doing the work to get better at something. That's self-efficacy. Now, the great news is when we build self-efficacy, that means doing things that are uncomfortable, which is where growth comes from, discomfort, the bottom line is self-esteem will follow. Like if you put in the work to lose a hundred pounds, you're going to feel great about the, your power to be able to do difficult things. And by the way, when your inner dialogue kicks in and you go, I can do this, it's actually going to have some, some power behind it. Your self-esteem is also going to follow. You're going to feel better about yourself and you're going to feel more comfortable. So this idea of fake it till you make it is fundamentally flawed. And by the way, the research, behind it yeah you might bobby you might have heard of this before or some of our listeners have especially if they're in grad school in sports psych uh the idea one of the real advocates of this phrase was some research done at harvard a couple years ago on power poses power poses are this idea that if you're not really feeling confident enough to do something you go into a bathroom stall and you pose like superwoman or superman or something for five minutes And then you come out and you're supposed to have enough uh, confidence to do whatever it is that you were trying to do, whether it was a job interview or confront your boss or do whatever, right? 
And what they found in that research was what you typically find when you go for a boost of self-esteem, which is you're going to feel pretty good for a pretty short amount of time. The bottom line is, though, over time and under pressure, it doesn't hold up. And that research doesn't hold up either. Over time, you're finding like, actually, no, that doesn't work. And so faking it till you make it, it's pretty unstable for one. The longer it goes on, the harder it is to maintain because you're starting to build a tolerance for what you need to do to feel better. So if you power post for a single minute, well, in six months, you might need to do it for two. And then that just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. And then the other part that is perhaps the most damaging part of it is that it just breeds inauthenticity, which is fake it. Be something that you're not or pretend you're something that you're not right now. So essentially, pretend you're not feeling what you're feeling right now. And that'll get you through it, which just breeds inauthenticity. And for human beings, we can be only be inauthentic for so long before it catches up with us and it undermines us. You can't lie to yourself and really be confident in a stable way for very long. And so the bottom line is what's a much more efficient approach is not fake it till you make it. It would be more of a like, acknowledge what you're feeling, focus on what you need to focus on and go do it anyway, would be a more stable approach. And then come back and process it and talk about it with the people who are close to you and who you trust and then kind of push yourself to the edge of your absolute comfort zone and then come back and then stretch it again and then come back and stretch it again rather than just pretend you are as prepared as you think you want to be or you are who you think you would rather be or somebody else. And so this fake it till you make it, it can actually be a pretty dangerous uh, place to try to build confidence on because it's super unstable and it actually undermines confidence over uh, time. This is going to be a little bit of semantics, I think. Um, but I agree with you and I disagree with you at the same time on this one. And what I mean by that is your premise of what you're saying about the um, inherent dangers of the fake it till you make it phrase are, of course, correct. Um, and, I, and, there's, and I don't disagree with you there. Where I do have some disagreement is the total um, trashing of the concept of the phrase fake it till you make it and the value it may or may not have in performance. And, and, and here's, this is why I say this might just be semantics and I might really be saying the same thing you just said, just in a different way. Um, hashtag semantics. Um, I think it's situational. And I think your point that we're totally in lockstep on is that it, this can't be your long-term solution. Um, you know, I agree with you. If you had a client, if, 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 a team, whatever it was, and their their confidence or their you know their their performance was built to some extent foundationally in a long term sense on fake it so you make it. We're going to act some way we don't feel um, to sort of trick ourselves into actually being the way that we want to be. Uh, I, I'm I'm totally with you, Raymond. That that just that that's not sustainable. Um, but I do think there's a a, a micro macro conversation to be had on the value of the phrase fake it till you make it as long as it's done with the awareness and acceptance and knowledge that this can't be my long-term solution i do think there's situational value in some awareness that hey i don't feel this right now like i i don't go all the way to inauthenticity with you you know what i mean like and i'm, I'm gonna take it out of sport for a second i'm gonna take it to parenting um i want to be a certain kind of parent but I will not always be that gold standard of parent that I want to be. And there are times where my kids are frustrating me or have gotten me out of my performance to the point where I genuinely don't feel calm. I genuinely don't feel 
positive, nurturing, the things I want to be. But I know enough from a mindset training standpoint to to utilize a fake it till you make it kind of approach. I know enough to say, all right, Bobby, I have a little routine. I'm going to get myself to behave in a way that I don't feel authentically right now, but is part of the greater good of, of me, you know, of the authentic self that I want to be, that I'm, you know, moving towards. That's a framework of, of the life I'm trying to live. So there are times where I think you can employ it. Again, I, I think we can get off on semantics a little bit because we might be kind of saying the same thing. I, I could see your response to this being like, well, yeah, sure. That's what I'm saying. Right. Um, but I do think there's value because I do think people understand it. It says, okay, listen, behave in a way that you don't necessarily feel internally and you might blink in 20 minutes and you've tricked your brain back into feeling the way that you originally want to feel that maybe you felt before. Uh, so I, I, I 100% agree with you, but yeah, go ahead. Can I just, can I just respond to that? So you're, you're making my point because again, you're not initially saying to yourself, you're going you're going the self-efficacy route and not the self-esteem route with that. So if you were faking it, you would try to change the way you feel so that you could then act in the way that you want to. But instead what you're saying Bobby is, I'm going I'm acknowledging what I feel and I'm acting in opposition to my feelings anyway. That's effort-based, that's action, and that's not faking it. And then what you've done is you've acted differently for long enough through that discomfort that there's been a change in the way that you feel. So that is, I've built my self-efficacy and power by acting in a way that is in direct opposition to how I feel and stuck with that long enough that my self-esteem has been able to catch up. And so that is not faking it till you make it. Faking it till you make it would be like telling yourself, okay, you're the best person here. You can do this. Fake it uh, and dressing like somebody who you're not or doing the things that you wouldn't normally do. In a, in a way that is trying to convince yourself to feel better about doing something that you're uncomfortable doing rather than going, wow, I'm really uncomfortable about doing this. Here's how I'm going to do it anyway. And then, wow, surprise, surprise, my feelings have found a way to catch up after I've built my power. So that I would not say is faking it till you make it. The fake it till you make it is the graduate student who's like, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be here. I'm going to convince myself that I'm supposed to be here and then give a presentation rather than going, I feel like I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm yeah, going to give this yeah, presentation. I mean, I, I, and here's how. I agree with your premise that the the like I said the, the it's 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 kind of wrong conceptually, but I do think throwing the phrase out completely like it doesn't have value situationally, even if it's not you know to to academically focused as okay, this is 100 percent accurate. I think there's some value for people like in that parenting example I gave to someone. If you've done the right work around that situation, that it can be used just to help someone as a reminder of like, okay, you don't feel this right now, but act the way you don't feel as long as it's not part of a long-term solution as I already said. So I, I'm with you. I mean, I think, I think we're saying kind of, that's what I said semantics a couple of times. I agree with you. The premise, long-term solution the, the, is, is not correct. You don't want to be building a mindset on the foundation of fake it till you make it. However, uh, I just think totally scrapping the phrase. Um, I, I think it can have value for people at times. Short spurts, you know, so probably saying the same thing different ways. Uh, grad students, let us know how you heard that. Um, I, I, we're probably saying the same thing, just slightly different takes on it. But um, in 30 seconds, any other, I've got one, two more. You've got one more. Do we want to get just 30 I mean, seconds on each fire. since we're running um, short on time here? And maybe we can come back to them later if people tweet us if you want us to. Um, and let's wrap this thing up. So, I mean, my, my other one that's my kind of my big one is just goal setting as a concept. 
we've talked about on previous podcasts. I think it's mm-hmm. overdone, m- miscommunicated. Um, it's misused and it basically amounts to this concept of like goal setting is the task. You know, I, I'm not really interested in what your goals are. You know, the, the path to success is what performance is all about. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it's more about, I, I want to know where you're headed, what's your framework, what's your purpose. Um, and then let's talk about the path to, to get there. So I think goal setting as a concept is overused and has lost a lot of value, um, in, in performance consulting. Um, I think that really it amounts to an organizational skill at this point, not so much, uh, peak performance training. Uh, what do you got? Uh, well, I'll agree with you on that one, and I'll just say because goals are almost zero percent uh, predictive of success. So the phrase "follow your goals" can't be that powerful. Uh, the last two that I'll have is uh, trust the process. Um, processes were not meant to be trusted; they were meant to be committed to. And if you want to trust the process that you're working on, you'll have to commit to it and be vulnerable to the fact that it might not work out. So trusting the process is like telling someone the checks in the mail. Uh, committing to the process is like handing them a check. So trust the process, not so good. Commit to the process, far much better. You will be hearing from Far, much better, far more better. Proceed. And then I will, well, sure. Uh, and then the last one is find your passion. Uh, this is graduation time. We hear a lot of graduation speeches telling graduates to find their passion. That makes it sound like passion is just a matter of like sifting through a bunch of things that aren't your passion. Passions are not found, they are developed. Um, And yes, there are things that we gravitate toward and enjoy more right away or things that we might be better at uh, easier. But the bottom line is if the much better advice would be to explore your passions, which would be to stick with things long enough to find out if you're passionate about them. Find your passion makes it seem like if you don't like something within the first week or something or it doesn't come very easily to you, that it's not your passion, which is really far from the truth. So the bottom line is find your passion, especially as a graduation speech, terrible advice, explore your passions and give them some time to marinate and develop and find out if you really are passionate yeah. about them. I see, 15 seconds on that. Yeah. Switch. 15 seconds on that. A little bit passion one for me. I don't remember which episode it was when we did our, our origin stories and how we got into this. And I shared, you know, my potentially un orthodox path to this and some of my failures at, at certain parts of my life. And I, I take issue with this find your passion because as a graduation speech, because it's so daunting to a kid, you know, like, I, like it was one of the things I was so overwhelmed totally. at the time of my life. And I felt so helpless. And that kind of message that was meant to be inspiring, like, like stuck me deeper in the earth. So like just message to people trying to counsel kids at that stage, if it's a graduation speech, like don't make it daunting. Like simplify, shorten, make it about the now. Tell me, tell me what to do today. You know, um, so I'm with you. I, I don't, I don't appreciate that. It strikes a chord. Okay, we'll call that a podcast. All right, we'll uh, call that a podcast. Thanks for Bobby, the questions, up Jeff. Us. Awesome question. Got us going there. Uh, listen, if it's only grad students out there, send us what you want us to talk about. We, we're enjoying doing it. We love getting your feedback. If you're not a grad student and you want to tell us what you want to hear about. Please do that too. You can tweet the show at Talk Out Loud VR. Um, if you want to uh, tweet Raymond, uh, you can find him at rfpsport.com. And uh, you can always find me at my website, bobbydookie.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we promise to do better next time. All right. Be well, everybody. Have a good week.